0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and we're here today with Dr. Heather Curtis of Tufts University to discuss her book, Holy Humanitarians, American Evangelicals and Global Aid. Dr. Curtis analyzes the Christian Herald, an interdenominational newspaper which became one of the leading coordinators of international humanitarian assistance in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. By focusing on this newspaper and the men who ran it, Dr. Curtis sheds light on the history of international humanitarian relief in the United States, debates over the role that evangelicals should play in public life, and the identity of the United States as a Christian nation in an era of uncertainty and change. Dr. Curtis, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you went to school.
1: Zeb, thank you so much for having me on. It's um, a real privilege to be able to talk about my work. So um, I started my education at the University of Virginia with an interdisciplinary major in political and social thought. And for that, I wrote an undergraduate thesis on human rights and the transition to democracy in Latin America. And that reflected sort of a driving interest of mine in ethics and international human rights law. I also was interested in medical ethics. So, um, the, I had this driving question early on about how, um, how people deal with various forms of suffering. And eventually um, I thought I was going to be an ethicist or an international human rights lawyer, but eventually I found my path to answering the questions I had through history. So I think about myself now as a scholar who writes about the history of ethics. Um, and asked how human beings in the past have dealt with ethical dilemmas, various forms of suffering. So to get there, I I first pursued a master's degree in theology, followed by a doctorate in the history of Christianity from Harvard, where I focused my research in American religious history. And during that period of time, I was really captivated. Um, My broader training in the history of Christianity, Christianity led me to stories of medieval christian saints who were venerated for their suffering right the imitation of christ and i the question arose for me how did christianity tra- transition from a, a religion with suffering at its center to one that in some contemporary american expressions such as the one sort of embraced by donald trump and many of his key religious advisors proclaims that christianity promises health and wealth right sickness and pain are only for those who don't have enough faith or who aren't good enough. So that sort of set of questions led me to my first book, um, which was about faith healing. And it asked how Christians have made sense of and coped with suffering in their own bodies. And it focused on late 19th century. I'm happy to say more about that if you want to hear about it. But out of that book um, came a curiosity about um the book that we're talking about today um, how Christians may have made sense of and coped with the suffering of others and how and why has that changed over time so that's a, you know, a quick background of how I went from an undergraduate interdisciplinary major in political and social theory to uh, a PhD in the history of religion and now um, you know two different books that I think of as books about the history of ethics focused on questions about how Christians in particular in the United States have dealt with both personal suffering and various kinds of suffering outside of themselves.
0: So that's a nice, actually sort of clear trajectory right to this particular book. Um, I'm curious, was there a specific impetus that brought you to holy humanitarians or was it, was it a topic you'd sort of been aware of and wanted to work on before this?
1: Yeah, so the first book, The Faith in the Great Physician, which is about um, the late 19th century divine healing movement, um, many of the characters in that book um, claimed to experience dramatic healing and insisted that they had been restored to health in order to do God's work in the world. So for women in particular, this involved becoming usually missionaries, and quite a few of them the characters in that first book went overseas to places like Armenia and India in the 1880s and 90s, where they very soon encountered suffering on a massive scale in the form of in Armenia political violence or natural disasters like the Great India Famines of the 1890s. And so um, I knew about those encounters and I was curious to know how these individuals who had experienced healing on their own made sense of and coped with suffering, the suffering of others. And I wanted to know like how they translated the sort of personal into the social. So that led me to start looking at a lot of missionary archives and um, trying to think about the various um, organizations in the late 19th century that were thinking about suffering in international context, but also domestically, places like um, the YMCA or um, city missions movements. And um, one of the archives that I worked extensively in early on was the Day Missions Library at Yale University. And I found in um, one of the sets of papers there reference to an orphanage in China during the early 20th century that was sponsored by an organization called the Christian Herald. And I thought, Hmm, what's that? And um, that's how I led it led me down to the path to this book, which eventually I started off with this huge scope, right? All, all different missionaries, all different kinds of organizations to then discovering that the Christian Herald association was an organization that still existed. Um, it's still, Um, uh, has some ministries in New York City. The most prominent one is the Bowery Mission, which is a a homeless shelter and soup kitchen um, in the Bowery Lower East Side. And um, I started looking into the history of that organization and particularly a newspaper that the organization published in the late 19th century that was focused on, um, in part, relieving suffering both at home and abroad. And I, the more I read it, I, the more I got fascinated by the content and found that the story of this organization really hadn't been told. And I, the more I researched it, the more I thought it was worth knowing about. So that's how I ended up um, with this particular book and focusing on um, the main story of this Christian Herald organization and the characters who uh, were at the head of it.
0: Wonderful. So let's dive into your first chapter then. That's kind of the perfect introduction. The Christian Herald, who founded it? What what was what was the intent behind its founding?
1: Okay, so um a couple things to say about the Christian Herald. I'm assuming most people that I talk to about the book, whether it's um now on this program or even during the research process, have never heard of it, right? They don't it's not a common it's not a household name. Um, The two major characters, the proprietor, the owner of the newspaper, Louis Klopsch, and his editorial partner, minister named Thomas DeWitt Talmadge, um, it's possible some people have heard of Talmadge, but most people have never heard of either of them or the newspaper they ran. And on the, on the contrary, if I were to say, have you heard of Clara Barton and the American Red Cross? Most, most people say, yes, of course. Or um, John D. Rockefeller and the Rockefeller Association. Most people say, of course. So that was um, part of the uh, goal of my project was to say that if you actually look at the 1890s, early nineteenth the early 20th century, the Christian Herald was um, an extremely important vehicle for fostering uh, faith-based humanitarian aid abroad and philanthropy at home, and in fact rivaled, even outshined the accomplishments of competing organizations like the Red Cross or Um, early on the Carnegie and Rockefeller Rockefeller Foundation. So part of the introduction to the book is making the case, right, that why is it important to know this story, to hear about the lives and work of Lewis Klopsch and Thomas DeWitt Talmadge, even though um, they haven't been, um, they're not major figures in the history of philanthropy or humanitarianism. So the introduction really sets out, like, here's what the forgotten story is, Um, Here's how the Christian Herald uh, set out to uh, try to get American Protestants interested in the suffering of others, both within American cities as well as overseas, and um, really makes the case for the fact that this was an influential movement um, that did involve a a vast number of uh, people, the American public in humanitarian enterprises from the time Klopsch purchased the magazine in the 1890s until his death in 1910. So the introduction sets that stage. Um, It introduces the newspaper, the main characters, tries to establish their importance for the history of American humanitarianism, talks about how successful the publication was in gaining subscribers, talks about its interdenominational audience and international scope. and yeah just that's that's my goal in doing that to get, introduce people to what the Christian Herald was, which I can say a little bit more about if you think we need to do that
0: well i'm I'm curious first of all what was the tradition of liberal international humanitarianism in the United States prior to uh, the Christian Herald?
1: Yeah, so there was definitely um some episodic. Concern for—I mean, if we're talking about international humanitarianism in particular, um, from the founding of the United States, there were there were awareness campaigns when crises would happen abroad. So, um, one of the good places to look for this for your readers, if sort of a traditional history of American philanthropy abroad, is Merle Curti's classic study. Um, He talks about one of sort of the most the moments at which Americans become activated for concern overseas is the um, Greek wars of revolution for independence in the 1820s. So Americans get interested in the plight of the Greeks who are, who they see as fighting for liberty and independence, just as the United, in a similar way that the United States was fighting for liberty from tyranny from Great Britain. So um then with the Irish famines of the 1840s and beyond, there were also efforts to try to raise relief to send to Ireland to help um, famine victims. But there weren't, um, I think what makes the Christian Herald, as well as the American Red Cross and this late 19th century period important, is that up until this time, there weren't structures in place for... Um, Raising funds for um, delivering aid. There was very, and up these earlier instances, there was debate at uh, the federal level about whether the government had congressional and approval to um, appropriate monies for international relief. There was no state sponsored, there was no USAID, right? There was no welfare state. So, both domestically and internationally, There aren't um, governmental structures in place to promote um, either fundraising or aid delivery. So by the late 19th century, you start to have the um, foundation of these organizations that uh, compete to be the humanitarian arm of the United States foreign policy, right? So the American Red Cross is one. And part of what I argue in the book is that the Christian Herald is also arguing to um, be sort of the primary agency through which American international aid will um, occur.
0: Now, there's a theological question at work here with the Christian Herald, too. You know, there's, what struck me reading this book was the extent to which there's, there seems to be, a, if not an argument, at least a conversation among American Protestants about the best way to sort of give alms and to bear witness in the world in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Where does the Christian Herald fit into that discussion?
1: So one of the broader arguments of the book is that the Christian Herald and Lewis Clapton Thomas Talmage, at its head were interested in humanitarianism and philanthropy. They were concerned about the suffering of others and having um, American Protestants Um, live out their faith through giving and caring. They were also very concerned about the status of American Protestantism at this time. Um, The 1890s is a time in which um, what had been a relatively unified um, American Protestant identity that they equated with the identity of the United States as a Christian nation that unity was coming under a lot of pressure in the 1890s for theological reasons. Um, this is sort of the era of Darwinism, debates about um, how to interpret the Bible, whether the Bible is, you know, um, the inerrant inspired word of God or whether or not it has to be also read historically. Um, there were d- debates about social issues, the uh, influx of Catholic immigrants and, you um, the reunification of the nation post Civil War, so all kinds of concerns about whether or not American Protestants could maintain what uh, historians call this evangelical united front, and we can talk about the word evangelicalism in a little bit. But for most of the 19th century, it meant it was somewhat synonymous with American Protestantism, right? So Episcopalians, Lutherans. Uh, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, uh, Disciples of Christ, all of these groups had specific uh, debates about um, some points of theology and church policy and organization, but they shared a basic uh, concern for Christianizing um, America and the United States. And so by the late 19th century, that's starting to fracture and part of what I argue in the book is that Klopsch and Talmadge see humanitarianism and philanthropy as a way of keeping American Protestantism united, right? If they, so like, let's not talk about who wrote the Pentateuch, um, <laughs> who wrote the books of the Bible, but, but what we do know is that Jesus calls people to help their neighbor, so certainly if we all participate in this common aim and focus on that, we don't have to be focused on these things that are more divisive. And at the same time, they had a vision for um, how doing that, becoming a charitable, um, alms giving nation could keep the United States explicitly Christian and distinctive, sort of the Redeemer Nation idea in a, at a time when the United States was also becoming more engaged in world affairs, so those are sort of two ways I think that the theological is operating for the Christian Herald, and it becomes increasingly part of the story of the book is that holding that center together becomes increasingly difficult by the time Claps dies in nineteen ten, and that's part of um, part of the end of the story of, of why it is that the Christian Herald becomes some takes on a different shape in the twentieth century.
0: Mm. So let's let's dive into one of those campaigns, and this, this one um, this one comes out of your second chapter. It has to do with the Ottoman Empire, where the Christian Herald is heavily engaged, but sort of almost as time goes on, on different sides. What's going on um, in the Ottoman Empire in the eighteen nineties?
1: Yeah. So um, the second chapter really tells the story. I think the first chapter sets up, you know, how the Christian Herald originally gets involved in both domestic philanthropy and, um, international aid. And by, um, by the early 1890s, 1894, the Christian Herald's Klopsch and Talmud really see their newspaper as this instrument of, um, carrying American charity to the world. Um, of, they have this ethic of, um, the desire to aid what they call all nations, kindreds, peoples, and tongues, right? And that um, participants in the Christian Herald can um, engage in charity in order to forge connections with um, humanity across the world. So it, their original vision is really quite expansive. They are um, optimistic about this time period of increasing globalization. Um, they're very aware through the newspaper and all of the missionaries that they correspond to uh, about encounters between um, American Christians and people of diverse political, ethnic, religious affiliations. And they're hopeful that God's kingdom is 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 being born. That's how they and they see humanitarianism as a part of that project. Right. If we can. Um, aid suffering others. This is a way of carrying Christ's message and ultimately bringing about this kingdom of universal peace and goodwill. It's, it's quite stunning, their optimism about all this. So in 1894, um, there is an earthquake in Constantinople, and they decide, they make a huge case for saying this is an opportunity for Americans to do good um, to brothers and sisters in the around the world. In Constantinople, there are all kinds of um, people suffering, and and by the way, they hear about this earthquake through missionaries in the the ABCFM, the Congregationalist Missionary Board, who write home to them and say we need help, and the city has been flattened, and so they appeal to their readers and say um, we should help, we should help um, our brothers and sisters in Constantinople. And originally, they have the sense that that includes everyone. It includes the Christians who are uh, present in the region. It also includes the Jewish population in Constantinople, as well as Muslims who've also been affected by the earthquake. And they talk at length in this campaign about how charity should extend to um, all people, regardless of national, religious or ethnic affiliation. Um, but then as I think, as you know, that chapter also charts it early on, they start getting pushback from their readers saying, why should we be sending money to help people who are slaughtering Armenian and persecuting Armenian Christians? So in right around the time of this earthquake is the beginnings of the Hamidian massacres. It's a, um, in which many Armenian Christians are killed in acts of violence. And um, Klopsch and Talmadge really quickly pivot um, from this more cosmopolitan ideal of aiding um, people of any nation, tribe, or tongue to arguing that um, even in Constantinople, well, we should still continue the campaign because many Christians are among the victims. So, with, but pretty quickly they. With um, As they get more and more critique from their readers, they pivot away from the Constantinople earthquake campaign in favor of an effort to rescue survivors of the Armenian massacres, um, who they then um, spend a lot of time talking about the consistency between that group of people um, and American Protestants who are concerned for religious liberty, for political self-determination, um, for autonomy and they frame their relief effort as helping their brothers and sisters in Christ, um, as opposed to helping people regardless of their religious affiliation. And that chapter talks kind of at length about the strategies, um, sort of the competing strategies of what I call cosmopolitan charity and then tribal charity, Mm -hmm. um, which is more focused on helping those with whom we have things in common.
0: Now, you've alluded to this question and this issue of tensions between the American Red Cross and the relationship of the Christian Herald to the federal government. And I I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the chapter in which you discuss that.
1: Sure. So um, chapter three is called We Are Fighting for Philanthropy, and it analyzes the role of the Christian Herald um, in the government's U.S. government's efforts to alleviate suffering in Cuba leading up to the Spanish-American War. So as the crisis in Armenia really begins to subside, um, the Christian Herald starts to turn its attention to um, the ongoing debates that Americans are having about civilian suffering arising from the Cuban War of Independence. And um, there's a an argument going on in the press about whether the government should take military action to ins- assist insurgents in their fight against the Spanish colonizers or whether the, main, the United States should maintain its longstanding policy of Neutrality, and within this context, Klopch and Talmadge propose what they see as a middle way: that providing humanitarian assistance to non-combatants in Cuba can offer an alternative to either military intervention or continued isolation. Um, so they don't see it as uh, they see. Um, sort of maintaining isolation as morally problematic. How can the United States ignore um, the suffering? They've just actually been very critical of Europe, of Europeans for not um, responding adequately to the suffering of Armenians. So they're arguing Americans, this is in our own backyard. We can't ignore the suffering of um, Cubans who are suffer who are um, being oppressed under Spanish rule. But we also don't, they're also, um, have a long-standing tradition of pacifism, so they don't want to advocate war either. So here's their opportunity to say humanitarianism is the way that the United States should make itself present um, on the on the world stage, and it should be a different kind. The United States has an opportunity here to set an example for all nations of how to conduct inter- humane international relations, Christian international relations. So um, with this argument, Klopsch uh, succeeds in being appointed uh, as a member of the State Department's Central Cuban Relief Committee, which is a committee of three people. So he really exercises a considerable authority over the procurement of relief supplies and distribution supplies um, after the State Department sets up this committee. And although this gives him a really powerful claim that the Christian Herald is at the forefront of the nation's official humanitarian operations, it's also the case um, that Clara Barton's nephew, Stephen Barton, is one of the other members of this three-person committee and is influential in um, having Clara Barton go to Cuba to be the one to um, help distribute the supplies that are sent by the committee. Um, Klopsch decides to go to Cuba himself. And, um, when part of one of my favorite parts of the book is telling the story of this very public argument that they have when they meet in in Cuba, the fight is quite dramatic. Clara Barton flies or flies out of Cuba in a rush, um, goes back to the United States. The press picks up the story and, um, it really be, this is right also as the United States, um, declares war. The Spanish-American War um, eru- erupts. And so right at the same time, Klopsch is embarrassed by this fight that he has with, with Clara Barton. The United States no longer is maintaining this policy of um, Christian humanitarianism as the way to interact on the world stage. And this now the Christian Herald has to decide. Um, they're no longer at the forefront of humanitarianism they're no longer, um, the United States is no longer maintaining a pacifist stance. So how are they going to respond now that the United States is engaging in war and quickly embroiled, not just in war with, um, in, related to Cuba, but also um, involved in military actions in the Spanish colonies of Puerto Rico, Guam, Samoa, and the Philippines. And now what are they going to do? So that's part of the story that I cha- I trace in this third chapter.
0: Mm. So, this next chapter, All Middle of the World, is interesting because, in, in part, it describes an interesting relationship of members of the Christian Herald and, more broadly, um, evangelical Christians in the U.S. towards sort of their counterparts elsewhere in the world. Tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah so this chapter actually opens with I mean I, I should probably finish up the answer to how I um, how the Christian Herald responds to the Spanish-American War. And this is another example of a kind of pivot from uh, framing the humanitarian project as one involving relief of suffering through um, in ways that will preserve peace to broadening their definition of humanitarianism to include holy warfare on behalf of the afflicted. So um, once the United States declares war, Clopsh and Talmadge, rather than critiquing that decision, decide that this is actually an act of humanitarianism to come to the aid of um, the freedom fighters in Cuba and then also to in, come to the aid of uh, former Spanish colonized peoples in um Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, and to, to sort of position the United States as a, a kind of benevolent um, liberator of suffering subjugated people. They quickly receive um, critique for that position, not just from anti-imperialists that we know about, but also from their own, within their own ranks. So one of their um, one of their strongest critics is also uh, a regular contributor to the newspaper, the evangelical minister, Charles Sheldon, who um, some may know as the author of In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? So that's um, that popular slogan that some Christians still appeal to. Um, Sheldon was a uh, prominent minister in who regularly wrote for the Christian Herald and um Publicly accused the United States military of carrying out a repressive and vicious campaign in the Philippines. So within, so that's how Chapter Four opens. That um, and at, so Klopsch and Talmadge are anxious because suddenly this um, this vision that they had that the Christian Herald was going to lead um, the American humanitarian mission in the world, that the United States was going to be a distinctive. Christian nation on the world stage is undermined um, by American imperialism and evangelical critiques of it. So right at this moment, um, they also hear about massive famines going on in India through their missionaries. And they decide that the sort of way of recouping um, the United States reputation on the world stage is to organize an effort to succor famine sufferers in the British Empire. So chapter four, um, and this ends up becoming the most successful uh, humanitarian relief campaign in the in the um, Christian Herald's history. And chapter four talks about um, the various strategies that they use to elicit sympathy for India's um, famine victims, to reunite American evangelicals around this mission of um, claiming the United States reputation as an almoner of the world. That's the title of the chapter. Um, And then at the same time, the chapter looks at how as um, aid is distributed through missionaries in India, there's also the involvement of local Christians and some of the tensions and concerns that come up about how it is that, um, that American evangelicals are viewing Um, Indian sufferers and um, the way there's some pushback from Indians on the ground themselves about um, the way that they're depicted in the newspaper. So in some ways, the chapter is about the politics of representation, um, particularly it looks a lot at um, the Christian Herald was a real pioneer in um, humanitarian photography in depicting the suffering of others. And this is the chapter that Sort of analyzes most heavily um, their um, innovations in journalism and getting sort of getting people to care about suffering elsewhere by using photography, and also sort of the the, the ethical complications that come along with that practice.
0: What was also striking there is that um, one of the Indian Christians you describe, um, Pandita Ramabai, also also has some issues with the United States and sort of its own. Um, issues, which you then go on to discuss in the next chapter, which is, and I love the title for this, The Limits of Evangelical Benevolence. Tell us a little bit about that, and then- Yeah.
1: So um, I end chapter four with a discussion of Pandita Ramabai, who's a fascinating character in her own right, and um, a number of historians have written about her as a reformer of um, women's education in India. And she's a major figure in the India famine. She sets up; she had already established a school for widows and orphans. Um, for I'm sorry, for widows in India um, prior to the famine, and during the famine, she expands her organization to um, to become a shelter for famine widows and orphans. And within that context, she also is writing directly back to the Christian Herald and her other supporters in the United States to solicit aid. And she's quite, so she has her own voice. She has her own networks of support. And she uses those to um, not only raise aid, but to ask questions about the humanitarian project. And those include challenging um, the way that um, evangelicals like Klops and Talmadge present the United States. I, I think um, if, if readers listening to this look at the cover of my book, um, the image on the cover is called America, the Almoner of the World, and it's published in the Christian Herald right at, at the conclusion of the India famine campaign. And it depicts the United States as this kind of noble, magnanimous white savior of the sort of needy, dependent peoples of the world. And Ramabai herself, um, it's, it's, she doesn't directly... Critique this image, but she definitely has things to say about the United States not being as pure um, or as magnanimous as the Christian Herald and many American Protestants want to think. And some of her critiques include um, the fact that uh, Amer- African Americans are not granted equal rights in the United States. Um, it, it basically calls like the United States ideals are great, but they don't live up to them in the way that. Um, they're trying to present in pictures like the one on the cover of my book. So chapter five kind of takes up that critique and, um, looks at not only Ramabai, but others who are calling, um, the United States to its account for the way it treats minority groups, including African-Americans, including immigrants, particularly Asian immigrants, um, and Native Americans. And so, and it asks, it looks at the way the Christian Herald does or does not engage with communities outside of white American Protestantism. And um, this chapter I actually really owe to one of my friends at the Christian Herald Association, James Macklin, who originally invited me to come look at their archives and would sit with me while I was doing research. And um, he asked me this question, you know, what about African-Americans? Where are they in your story? And it, um, it's on the one hand, it's quite true that the Christian Herald was very involved in efforts to um, sort of uh, organizations like Tuskegee or um, industrial education for African-Americans throughout the South. So it's not that they weren't engaged in philanthropy, but it was a very particular kind of philanthropy. And they were much quieter about um, the um, the kind of increasing violence against African Americans in the Jim Crow era. They don't talk about lynching. There are certain things that, that they don't. So there are some kinds of suffering that make the pages of the Christian Herald and some kinds of suffering that don't. And so his question, James Macklin's question to me, got me asking um, why is it that certain kinds of suffering become part of their repertoire and others they're they just remain completely quiet. So those, that's what happens. That's, those are the kinds of things I'm wrestling with in chapter five.
0: And I just had a, a quick question. Um, I, I was struck reading that chapter. Did the, does the Christian Herald have a, a relationship with any prominent African American churches?
1: So they, like, as I was saying, they have, um, so they, don't, they have a relationship with as many Protestant churches as they can. I mean, they want to be very inclusive and they are regularly publishing profiles of um, African-American ministers and philanthropists from the AME or the AMEZ. So on the one hand, yes. They give voice to African-American Christians probably much more so than any other religious publication in this period that I could see in the sense that many of the other uh, religious, their competitors were denominationally focused. So because Mm -hmm. the Christian Herald is interdenominational, they want to present um, American Protestantism as a unified um, community. And so but they don't have. I, it's they don't have formal relationships with African American churches. But that's, it's also true that they don't have formal relationships with, um, you know, traditionally white denominations. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yes, I think that does make sense. So then, let's pivot on to the next chapter, to safeguard Christian America. What are they safeguarding here?
1: Right. So part of the concern, again, sort of leading off of chapter five, is that. Um, what they find is that they um, a lot of the anxieties that are emerging because of increasing racial violence against African Americans, against Native Americans, as well as against Asian immigrants, Catholic immigrants, is leading to um, sort of a growing anxiety that the United States isn't actually um, living up to its Christian morality on the one hand. So you've got critiques from people like Ramabai, uh, Charles Sheldon, Ida B. Wells, Mark Twain, Mm -hmm. uh, calling out the United States' failure to to be just to all of the diverse communities that are part of its um, citizenry. And at the same time, you have... um, you've got a, a lot of social change, right? That there's there are um, increasing numbers of diverse people coming into the United States. And originally, the Christian Herald has a lot of confidence that um, the United States can absorb these diverse communities, but it, it becomes increasingly clear that this is not going to be as easy as that they had hoped. So that's partly what chapter five is about. So chapter six looks at how the Christian Herald has to come to terms with a new United States and a variety of trends that are transforming the United States, not just socially, but also theologically, um, as well as some changes going on in debates about humanitarianism and philanthropy. So, um, so chapter six looks at, um, on the one hand, um, these kind of growing concerns so one of the other important things that happens in the beginning of chapter six is that Talmadge dies. And at that moment, he dies in 1902 and Christian Herald really loses its sort of public figurehead. Um, Klopsch is the behind the scenes proprietor of the newspaper, but Talmadge is the well-known, um, uh, most popular minister of his day. And so that, um, that's an important factor. At the same time, the American Red Cross, this is sort of post-clash with Clara Barton, um, is gaining prominence and increased support from the U.S. government. And then thirdly, um, this is also the period when proponents of more scientific forms of charity or organized philanthropy, as it was called, are calling for... um, a more professional approach to relief work. So, as opposed to the Christian Herald's kind of grassroots, volunteer, working with missionaries um, way of doing uh, humanitarianism, um, this is the beginning of the progressive era where there's a call to, like, let's make charity a profession. Let's make a charity more scientific and newly formed charitable foundations sponsored by um, wealthy industrialists, industrialists like Andrew Carnegie. Um, Olivia Sage, and eventually um, Rockefeller begin to put their money behind this idea of modernizing charity. So all of that's going on in chapter six, and Klopch is trying to, on his own, negotiate, on the one hand, um, increasing anxieties about immigration and racial violence, increasing tensions between um, capital and labor, um, increasing critiques of the millionaire class and industrial, um, success in the United States. And so he's arguing, like, given the fact that the nation is going through this, um, tumultuous period of change, it was more important than ever for the United States to maintain its, um, its face of, uh, Christian charity, right? That this was a way we can't lose Christian America now. So, um, He continues to try to have um, a, a lot of high profile overseas relief operations. Um, as well as an ongoing effort to um, try to convince the government that the United States or that the Christian Herald should be at the vanguard of the United States humanitarian mission. And the chapter really charts the back and forth of those efforts. Um, In some cases, um, the Christian Herald continues to show to outpace the Red Cross in terms of its fundraising ability. But as the Red Cross gets a new leader um, after Clara Barton is, resigns in the early 20th century, Mabel Boardman is quite successful in transitioning that organization into a much more organized, modern um, or, uh, structure that partners successfully with the government. The Christian Herald has less, um, less cachet. So that, that's part of the chapter. And then there are a couple other subplots going on um, where the Christian Herald starts to get involved in um, other kinds of campaigns, not just campaigns or debates about international relief work or um, poverty relief in the United States, but concern about things like the election of um, Senator Reed Smoot, um, a Mormon, to the U.S. Senate. Um, concerns about Theodore Roosevelt's decision to remove the motto in God we trust from American money. And both of these, um, the decision of the New York school board to um, not have Christmas celebrated in schools. And these are all signs for um, Klopsch and his uh, colleagues at the Christian Herald that somehow Protestant America is becoming is losing its grip on the United States national identity. So the newspaper gets involved in campaigns to try to unseat Reed Smoot, which is unsuccessful. To restore "In God We Trust" to American money, which is successful. And um, over time, you can start to see the Christian Herald um, as it's as it's struggling to maintain itself at the forefront of American aid, getting involved in other kinds of campaigns that it sees as essential to maintaining a Christian identity for the United States.
0: Mm. So Klopsch dies in 1910. What happens to the Christian Herald because of this? And then sort of what's its fate going forward after 1910?
1: Right. So again, this is losing Talmadge in 1902 is a real blow. And by the death of Klopsch in March of of 1910 is a real uh, turning point for the newspaper. Um, in 1910, the same week that Klopsch dies, two things happen. One is that the Rockefeller um, Foundation Far the Rockefeller files a charter for the Rockefeller Foundation um, to become this sort of huge tax shelter philanthropic organization. And the first edition of the fundamentals, which become the sort of touchstone tone Uh, text for the Fundamentalist Movement is published. So I kind of look at March 1910 as this pivotal month where um, many of the things in which the Christian Herald has tried to hold the center of American uh, evangelical Protestantism and the United States as a uh, Christian nation led by evangelical charity start to unravel. So Klopsch has worked for two decades by now to create this co- cohesive community of Christian believers who are committed to this shared mission of alleviating distress around the world. But um, finally, these centrifugal en- energies that I was describing before, sort of uh, tension, theological tensions, um, really begin to pull Protestants in divergent directions. So um, this is the period where debates between the fundamentalist and um those that they call Protestant modernist, um, become more intense. And one of the features of that debate is precisely about the role of charity within Christian practice. Um, Should Christians spend energy and resources devoted to alleviating poverty or disaster relief, or is their primary mission to preach the gospel So that's not an entirely new debate by 1910, but it becomes increasingly rancorous during this period. And so the Christian Herald, it it had never really been um, a subject of much conversation, but you start to see during this time period after Klopsch's death, um, more concern about whether or not what the Christian Herald's doing is really um, a primary way that Christians should be acting in the world. At the same time, um, controversy over the spread of Pentecostal revivals and particularly this practice of ecstatic um, religious experiences like speaking in tongues is starting to rupture the evangelical community throughout the United States and in other regions as well. And so that... um, up until that that time, holiness Christians had been very much a part of the Christian Herald's readership. And during this period, um, denominations begin to split over um, Pentecostalism and new denominations form that sort of draw readers away from this coalition that Klopsch had tried to create. Um, and so on the one hand, you've got these internal tensions destabilizing evangelical solidarity. And at the same time, you've got... Um, sort of an increasing consolidation of this movement towards um, large scale, scientific, modernized, professionalized charity. And as the Rockefeller Foundation um, eventually receives approval for its charter, the Olivia Sage Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, they all increasingly support um, this movement towards a a much larger scale um, form of philanthropy that eventually uh, partners with the U.S. government. So those foundations also eventually begin to support the work of the American Red Cross, which by now has become really like a semi-official arm of the United States government. And by the time of World War II, the ARC is carrying out um, a lot of the civilian relief work of um, the United States in Europe and the Christian Herald is is also still conducting some relief campaigns in the war, but after the World, world War One, it really begins to shift its focus to maintaining some of its domestic charities, like the Bowery Mission, which still exists today, but also um, devoting more and more of its pages towards things like promoting um, Protestant piety and spirituality.
0: So, are there lessons that we can apply from the Christian Herald? To today's humanitarian crisis, because these issues that they're facing aren't are, have not disappeared for us, both domestic and internationally.
1: Yeah, so um, I talk a lot about this in the epilogue um, of the book. What are what are the lessons of the book overall? And it's certainly true that during the period that I was researching the book, I spent a lot of time at the Christian Herald headquarters that's the only place where copies of the paper the newspaper existed up until um, my research we were able to digitize and preserve some of them but um, one of the great things about the research process is that I had a lot of opportunity to talk to people talk with people who are still working at this organization and you're right that many of the kinds of questions that I found, Klopsch and Talmage and their missionaries and their colleagues wrestling with are still questions that um, folks working at the Christian Herald are struggling with today. So um, things like um, does philanthropy create dependency? Should we have? Um, should we get involved in relieving the immediate needs of suffering people, or should we be investing in longer-term structural solutions? Um, why aren't people, how can we get people to care about suffering of others? Should we be using the kinds of iconography that the Christian Herald pioneered, where you're picturing suffering people as in need of the help of those who are, quote unquote, more fortunate? So all of those things, I think, um, are still prescient today. And I think my own, I don't know that I feel like there's Clear lessons of like here's how Clapham and Talmadge did it, and here's how we should apply, or here's the ways that you know they um, made some mistakes, and and these are mistakes that we could avoid. I think one of the goals that I had in the book was to look at the ways that humanitarianism and philanthropy, these efforts to help suffering others, the efforts to make the world a better place, to do good by others, is really entangled for them in ways that they may not have even realized with all other kinds, all kinds of other agendas, right? Economic ambitions, um, nationalist visions, um, political agendas, racial prejudices, gendered suppositions, and to to sort of make visible the kinds of forces that impinged on um, on their efforts to live out their faith as Christians. And then to ask, um, are there ways that uh, contemporary philanthropist or anyone that's trying to help others make the world a better place have, what are our own blind spots? Can we use their experience to try to think through um, how our own efforts to make the world better are also entangled with all kinds of things that we may not realize? So that was that was one of the most important, I think, lessons for um, me as a takeaway from the book. Um, maybe a little bit more of a pedantic one that I thought was, it was really interesting to look at the tension between the Christian Herald and the Red Cross and to look at the tension between a um, a form of philanthropy that was grassroots, volunteer, um, dri- driven by religious convictions to one that was... Um, you know federalized large scale um, professionalized and um what were what are those different models tell us right so one of the arguments that Klosch always had with Clara Barton was that it was much more efficient and effective to partner to collect resources and then partner with local people to distribute them as opposed to sending over um, American professionals to do the job and I think that seems to be, I mean, I'm not an expert in contemporary humanitarian aid, but it does seem to be a lesson that was absorbed over the course of the 20th century, right, that humanitarian organizations now tend to have local um, employees that aren't, aren't Americans necessarily sent over um, to deliver aid, but they're working with people who know the context, know the language, know the needs on the ground in a way that's different from um, an American aid worker. Mm. So I thought that was kind of it was just interesting to see that debate um, still uh, how it's still a prescient one even though maybe it's been worked out a little bit more fully. Um, the other thing I'll just mention is that I did write a um, blog post recently about um, the ongoing challenges of depicting suffering. I wrote a post about the viral photograph of the. Syrian to- toddler Alan Kurdi that washed up on shore in Turkey of September 2015, and how that photograph um, resulted in kind of a wave of outpouring sympathy for the Syrian refugee crisis, um, but just raised a lot of questions about the ethics of, um, of representing suffering. And I think that that's an issue that's still with us. Um, it's certainly effective to represent suffering in a certain way, but what are the consequences of doing that? Mm -hmm. So those are um, some of the kinds of things that I hope, um, I'm not sure, again, that these are lessons, but they're questions that that I hope will provoke conversation for people who are involved in humanitarian relief or philanthropy in the present.
0: Wonderful. We're just about the end of our time here. So I just wanted to ask And I know you're just coming off of a book project. So maybe you don't want to think about it yet. What do you want to work on next?
1: Well, um, there are so many stories that came. I mean, but when I started the conversation, I mentioned that I started with this huge project and I ended up getting fascinated by um, the story of this one newspaper and its leaders as a way of getting out at these bigger issues. So this is really kind of a micro history, right, that gets at much larger issues And it worked really well because the Christian Herald involves um, and solicited stories from all kinds of religious organizations, from the Salvation Army to the YMCA to the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, to missionaries, to um, industrial education and institutes throughout the American South. So there are a lot of stories that came up um, in this research that I didn't get to follow through on. And some of the ones that interest me most are, you know, this book talks a lot about the presentation of the United States as a Christian nation in a particular kind of way. But as we've been discussing, there's also places throughout the book where you can see um, people who are living with that idea, but also trying to live against it and beyond it. So someone like Pandita Ramabai, right, or someone like Charles Sheldon, and so the stories of those folks who are living, what I would say, I here I'm borrowing language from Robert Orsi, kind of in, with, through, and against a certain kind of American imperial and capitalist expansionism, I'm interested in looking at those stories and how it is that people lived in, with, through, against, and then I would add beyond um, those kinds of structures that are becoming increasingly... Um, prescient at this time. So imperialism, capitalism, and also racism. So I have a few stories that I'm, I'm trying to decide whether I'm just going to focus on one, um, or whether I'm going to try to weave together um, some of the stories of someone like Pandita Ramabai with Charles Sheldon with Amanda Berry Smith, um, to look at how they're creating networks that are, um, that are pushing forward something distinctive. Um in this time period, mm. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm not i'm uh, I'm not I haven't actually made any decisions just yet.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the chance to talk about the book.